2: Hello, welcome to the Autocar Podcast, My Week in Cars, with Matt Pryor and Steve Cropley. Hello, Stephen. Hello, mate. How's it going? Very good, mate. And uh, a bit of a difference this week, because there is uh, a live audience here at the Royal Automobile Club, and we have a special guest in the form of Andy Palmer. Yeah, true. More from Andy in a moment. Um, But first, Steve, let's do a bit of the uh, traditional My Week in Cars stuff. Um, Your column... We've got plenty of correspondence coming because we've got questions from the floor. Oh, good. But uh, your column, uh, somebody's been unkind about the Fiat 500.
0: Yeah, I took it on the chin. I mean, <laughs> sorry, I, um, I, I got humped with that because we have had in our family, um, two of them, grand total of mileage, 140,000 miles. Which magazine, mm. who I respect when it comes to buying a fridge or an inner swing mattress, mm. have decided that this is a is a poor car. I think, I'm trying to think what they're- Britain's least loved car. Least loved car. Now, I just do not believe that. That's not fair or correct, because we are the test. You know, we've had no issues in 140,000 miles. If you speak to my missus, she says, and you say, why is it that you love this car? She says, it makes me feel happy. Now, I believe that that is about the most elusive quality that you could possibly hope to build into a car. Mm. And if if a lot of manufacturers could make people feel happy about their product, they'd be a damn sight better off.
2: Yeah, they'd be much more chuffed. So what are the what is the which uh, criteria? Is it? I think it's is it reliability? reliability. Yeah. Is it really most least reliable? Well, one, it's difficult to to conflate poor reliability with least loved is not the same no. thing at all. No. No, that because, was
0: part of my problem.
2: Yeah, yeah, because I mean, I have a you know, an unreliable sports team is not necessarily the least loved sports team Indeed. by by any means. <laughs> but also
0: Is it is it really the most least well, reliable car? I always I can remember rattling on in my column about how well built and, and sort of generally well behaved our car was. It seemed to me that the paint was good, the panel fit was good, the interior stood up to the mileage, so I just don't believe it. No. Tell me about motor shows. They're well, back. They're back. Are they uh, back. I mean, are they back? Well, they are. But, um, we've just had a thing, a Geneva show in Qatar, haven't we? Which is mm-hmm. a bit of an oddball thing, but it's it's a it's a, an attempt. Um, but there's going to be a a proper Geneva show at the back end of February next year. I think you and I are both going, aren't we? You know. You, oh, I would
2: think so. Yeah. You used to do a walk around, didn't you? Yeah, we'll probably do that again. I remember the uh, <coughs> the first uh, COVID casualty Geneva mode show that basically was pulled. A day or two before it was bound to happen, wasn't it? So yeah. we just recorded. Oh, one yeah, the, a lot uh, of people
0: lost money. Yeah. I think that two things have happened. Renault have said, we are going to support this and we're going to be happy about it and there's going to be lots of good stuff and you wait. Mm-hmm. And all the German manufacturers, who I believe got killed in the financial rush in 2020, was it? Whatever yeah. it was. Yeah. Um, they have said, not on your Nelly, mate. Oh, interesting. But I bring up in the hope. Uh, that uh, Morgan, you, you remember at uh, Geneva, Morgan have always had an honourable tradition of having a much bigger stand than their brand really justifies. Yeah. Right in the middle of an aisle, aligned with a with a Scotch a Scotch whiskey maker, <laughs> so people were very happy when they went there. And I'm afraid they're not going this year. Um, they've, got, they've got they've uh, got business planning uh, to a to an exaggerated degree, and oh, I yeah. think they've decided that it's not necessarily a, a a return on investment it's a shame in it because
2: as a consumer as a show goer the Geneva show was a good I mean it works for you know for us hacks obviously but more importantly as a an actual show going fee paying member of the public the Geneva show is a good one
0: yeah i i reckon i used to say to car nutter, you know start the year but start your driving year by going to the Geneva show looking at a load of cars that will set you up for the year i always felt that it set me up for the year
2: yeah Right. This being an unusual My Week in Cars, we should bring in our guest, who I'm delighted to say is Andy Palmer, formerly the chief operating officer of Nissan, CEO of Aston Martin, currently an advisor to Falcon Group, the chairman of Inobat, uh, an ambassador for COP26 and works with Podpoint, Hilo and also the RAF. And he's been referred to as the godfather
3: of EVs. Yeah, it was better than when I was first called the grandfather of EVs. <laughs> <laughs> Who did that? <laughs> well, I had a word with a journalist. <laughs> I, <can't. laughs>
0: I don't blame you. Um, but the thing that th- – that is where you really came to notice for us, of course. But then you you moved on from that. You, you – um, Got Aston Martin over their problem because they looked for ages to find the right person to run the company, and that was you. In you went there for six years, then you came out again, and you've had a, a number of consultancy jobs. You're an advisor all over the place. But the thing we, thing I particularly respect you for is that when you you don't mind who you give a bit of a grilling to if they if you think they deserve it, and mm-hmm. on that basis, we we thought. Uh, you would be a great person to talk tonight. Um, The the burning question for me, I want to get into LEAF and all the rest of it later, is but given that you started in the kind of unreconstructed British car industry, at what stage of your career did you kind of get EVs? Did you suddenly, did it dawn on you that this was going to be the bold tomorrow to the extent that you hung your
3: career on it? I, I don't... I think there's, there's rarely one of those moments in life, whether it's, whether it's the, I don't know, whether it's fair to say the invention of the crossover, but Kashkai, um, of course, was, was a long burn, actually. Looks like it's instantaneous, looks like it's brilliant. Le- Leaf was a little bit like that. The, the, really, the first time that the concept of EVs came to my attention was when I moved to Japan. Um, and I was responsible for light commercial vehicles. Now, you might remember that um, Carlos Ghosn divided the company into six six product lines, basically. And he created a program director, which he called his Samurais. And the idea was that these, these Samurais would go off to turning the company around. Um, the first six got picked, and there was a poor chap that got light commercial vehicles, and it went not very well for not very many months. And that's when I got asked to go over to, to Japan. Uh, to and take you, you were the first Brit? Over the I was, y- yes. I mean, it was, yeah. I, I was, b- before the alliance, I bizarrely found myself as the most senior Gaijin foreigner in Nissan. Um, so I r- r- rose up and uh, there's a lot of glass ceilings in a, in, a, in a Japanese company. But as the alliance happened, there was a lot of sorting out and... Um, And, yeah, I got invited to take the program director's role, which was mostly Japanese. Um, Losing money, losing a lot of money. There was one other car at that stage which was losing money, and it was the um, Californian compliance car, which happened to be an EV. So they thought, who can we give this loss-making car to? Let's give it to the guy that's got all of the other loss-making cars just to (laughs) make his life a bit harder. Um, But what that did for me was, was give me access to the Vault, the, uh, the Advanced Engineering Department, because not being French, therefore not part of Renault, and I think you know, history has shown us what the li- alliance was really like inside inside that box. Um, I was almost an honorary Japanese, um, so definitely not French, so therefore much more trusted. <laughs> um, not, not Renault. Um, I'd been with Nissan a long time, and obviously, I'd, I'd committed to moving out there. So I got wonderful access through that, that Californian compliance car to the technology that was being developed in, in the labs. And as time went by and as my career progressed beyond like commercial vehicle, it, you could see a move, a mood change. And it was particularly, particularly obvious that Prius was doing very well was losing money but it was doing very well and it was attracting the attention of movie stars and there was clearly something in people's consciousness around around you know we've got to do something about mother earth and, and there was a lot of ticking going on in the background to say what we don't want is a me too but we we want something that would 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 leapfrog and and it started actually with ENV200. That ENV200 conceptually was the first car. It made sense to me that, well, A, I was responsible for light commercial vehicles, but it also made sense to me that if you put an electric drive into a van, that somehow should make sense because you can access pedestrianized areas and what have you. Yeah. But as, as I thought about it more... We really needed to make a statement, and the biggest statement that you can make is p- to put something up against the VW Golf in the C segment and take away the excuses so that, that it was, just had to be a damn good car, but, but in many respects needed to be quite conventional, but it needed to have an EV drive. My sales and marketing department were pulling their hair out because what they wanted, of course, was a Nissan, a Nissan Prius, um, but I could see that Honda were going to do that with the Insight, and history proves right that the Insight was a catastrophic failure, um, and you can't just do me too, whereas leap, leapfrogging, I think with Leaf and establishing a, a foothold there, for a long time, Nissan dominated that, that, EV, that EV space. Had, we can, we can say, had the company not changed its direction, had gone got behind the EV more. Had I not left the company, who who knows where where Nissan might be now? I think in a different plan. Infinity in particular, because the third car was always going to be the Infinity. And if if Infinity had gone EV, you could easily see it being a, a, a comparator to Tesla. But it, but it didn't. And history history moves on. And was there a sense that? Uh, w- 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 was, were those years, were you
0: watching or did you care what Renault were up to? Because they had early um, EVs, didn't they, as well? They,
3: they did. Um, I, I, I would say that the, the, the concept of EV was born out of Nissan, but Nissan was part of the Renault-Nissan alliance. Um, Goen was keen that Renault didn't miss out. Yeah, um, And they started um, developing the Zoe. At one point in time, I went to Gown and said to him, uh, these two platforms are growing apart. There's, there's little commonality. Um, shouldn't we just pause and, and try and bring it back? And he was keen not to, and I think it was a mistake. In the end, there was one common component shared between Leaf and Zoe. It was a connector, an electrical connector. And I think given the given the, the, the need for early volumes, I think it was a big mistake. Uh, that, that, that's something I would, would, would have wanted to have gone back and got at least commonality of, of, of platform. Just to, to, to diverge a little bit, tell us a few
0: Carlos Ghosn stories. What, what was, he, was he a good bloke to work for? Was he, was he dictatorial? Was he, was he a person that listened? What, what was he like? And what, what did you think of his decisions usually? It was good in a box.
3: <laughs> <laughs> small huh? it's a small box yeah um look um it's easy to, to 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 sort of take the the movie perspective uh for a long time um he was my absolute hero i mean as i was running the first time i met him i was running nissan europe engineering Uh, And he could easily have just come along and closed it and said, well, we've got the TechnoSantra that can do all of the European engineering. But he understood the brand and he also understood the value of engineering. I found him to be, he's clearly a very, very clever man. Um, But he also has this knack of simplifying a problem. He also has a knack of uh, engaging you in a way that makes you make a commitment that's much bigger than the one that you went in the room with. Um, and, and he had this, this ethos of commitment and target. He had this ethos of meritocracy where it didn't matter what passport you had, if you were good, then you had a, a good chance of doing very well. And I really admired that. And I, I admired that, I would say, up until the day of the great tsunami, I don't know why we call it great, because it was horrible, but the great earthquake um, and we, there, we, I, I was there i was there yeah i was on the twenty twenty second 22nd floor i was one of wow. two, two times in my life when i thought i was going to die and that was one of them um, and the company reacted very well i mean it, you know the japanese are absolutely trained to do what they do in an earthquake and the whole command and control uh, structure kicked in and shigasan who was the coo at the time was just bloody marvelous. Remember that during the, that weekend, it was, you know, the thousands of people that were killed in the tsunami was bad. Uh, um, our engine plant went down. Um, but then you had the Fukushima um, incident, and most of the Gaijin left. And they could do that because most of the, the Gaijin, the foreigners, Uh, were Renault, and they went back and worked in in Renault. Now, I I, I took the view, along with Simon Sproul, who worked for me, and a few others, that we were Nissan employees, and our fate was somehow connected to the fate of the Japanese people. So we stayed. Um, And I think what I saw then was Ghosn didn't come. And, and he made an excuse about it. they wouldn't let him land his private aeroplane. You don't always have to try and have a private no. aeroplane. They've got these things called commercial flights. Yeah. Uh, and great leaders in history step forward in, in, in chaos. Yeah, I see. Uh, and step in for, You know, I, I'm, a, I'm a great admirer of, the, of Wellington that always led from the front. And... I lost at that moment. I started to lose respect um, for my hero, which was yeah. which was tough. So, on the one hand, he taught me such a lot. Really, really, I would say more than anybody else, other than my father, probably. Uh, on the other hand, you know, seeing seeing him turn and and sort of concentrate on himself, concentrate on his salary. I don't know whether he stole any money or not, but but he certainly. Uh, was immoral in the, in the use of company jets and company uh, events, which obviously comes out if you watch the Apple movie. Yeah. Um, and by the time I left, he was principally the reason that I left. I see. It's very interesting. Um,
0: can I just go back? There's one question that I've already put it to you, but I'm sure our audience would be interested. Given that you were there at the beginning of the LEAF, and there were a huge number of, um, I guess, leaps of faith and guesswork and God knows what. What about that car would, would be different today if you knew what you know now? Uh,
3: I mean, I think we could have done a, we, we There's two things that I would, I would cite. One is a little silly, which is we tried to make it look like a conventional car. Um, we wanted it to look like a C-segment hatch. But obviously, it's compromised when you've got a battery this high, so you're, it's looked a little ungainly. Um, and in retrospect, I probably wouldn't have tried to make it look like a golf. golf. Yeah, gotcha. Um, the other thing, I, I, maintain, I maintain that I was right to take a 24 kilowatt hour battery. Small, small. However, my timing was shockingly bad. Um, I should have gone with a bigger battery. And I should have gone with a bigger battery because the right answer for, for most urban EVs is something like a 20 to, 20 to 30 kilowatt hour battery because that's how you get the cost down. That's how you get yourself a $25,000 C-segment car. You have to have a small battery, because the cost 40% of the cost of the vehicle is in the battery. But at the beginning, we were fighting, and still to fight to some extent, range anxiety, or actually charger anxiety. Uh, and until you've established... Um, a legitimate charging network in any given country. I don't think you can expect the customer to take the risk. And I didn't factor that in to the sizing of the battery. So probably that's the second thing that I would have changed. Just moving
0: forward, because inevitably, we, oh, the time comes, we run out of time. Let's talk modern, um, well, the, the, you know, the today's era. Mm. Um, you're well uh, plugged into the into the gigafactory business. You understand it, the progress of it far better than the rest of us here, or at least I think certainly me anyway. Where, How is the UK doing? My impression was that it was all a disaster. Ralph Speth, the boss of JLR, used to plaintively sort of cry in the wilderness that we needed gigafactories and nobody took any notice. Mm-hmm. Then the the notion of the, of, the, of the need for them came over the horizon, but nobody did anything. Mm-hmm. Then uh, f- uh, several plans d- uh, seem to have turned up, mm-hmm. and they're quite big ones. But can you summarize how we're doing and whether we're going to get there, as it were, and, and, and talk about the influence of the change from 2030
3: to 2035, please? Okay. <sighs> Where do you start on that um, without being too critical of the government? Oh, us be no, critical of the government. <laughs> um, f- first of all, you, you, I don't think anybody in this room would invest in a company that didn't have a corporate plan. You know, it's a fundamental, you need your, you need your plan, you need to know what the company is going to do. And as a country, we don't have an industrial strategy. We abandoned them. So why would you expect any, any car company... Or battery company to invest in a country that doesn't have a plant. First big issue. And you know, as a result, the UK was pretty much the first country in, well certainly the first country in Europe, one of the first countries in the world to have a gigafactory. I, I was responsible for building it in Sunderland. Um, built three while I was at Nissan. And so that, that advantage And and Nissan UK won that from France and Portugal. Um, And I I don't know whether you're a fan of or not, but Peter Mandelson is the guy that should be credited with the fact that uh, that that facility is there because he was the statesman. We don't have many of them anymore, do we? But he was the statesman that stood up and and won. I was on the other end of the line and won the, the, the Nissan factory. So we had a good starting point. We got off to a good start. This was leaf batteries. This was leaf batteries. What what is now called AESC or Envision, um, and then the government made these statements about wanting to lead, which I don't have a problem with. The idea that 2030 is a is a good uh, is a good aim. You know, I'm a great believer in we have to we have to address the issues of the planet and for the UK to become a laboratory seemed to me to be a good idea. And most car companies took it in that, in that, in that way that well, maybe having a big market like the UK that goes five years early, it's therefore worth investing in, in, in the vehicles to get them to market earlier than would normally have happened because normally you'd have go left-hand drive first. But that legislation... I think stimulated, and of course you had, therefore, the, the likes of British Volt trying to find, um, trying to find a way in. Um, I was also trying to find a way in. I mean, basically, innobat had every intention of putting a, um, a, a gigafactory in the United Kingdom. This is a company. This Your, is the company I chair. Um, where are they based now? They're based in Slovakia, building a building a, in Slovakia, and ended up in Spain. Um, UK managed to grasp defeat from the jaws of victory. Um, and it's simply around the dogma of of incentives and, and what level of incentives you put in. Um, and I, I'll get into a bit of politics, but I, I believe at certain, I'm, I'm a, obviously, I'm a capitalist. Obviously, I believe in the, the value of business. I Believe in capitalism, um, full stop. But there are moments in, in history, big moments, where you have to take a Keynesian view of the world. You have to, government has to be key to, to stimulating something because it won't get stimulated by itself. And what, what you've seen is that the sort of 20, top manufacturing countries in the world of cars, the governments have all stepped in and put significant resources either into incentivizing the move to electric cars or incentivizing the charging network, things that the companies by themselves can't do. It just doesn't have the the inertia to allow that to happen. And when that happens, when you get something like Joe Biden's IRA Act which you get, I think it's 34 kilowatt hours for free on, 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 it, on any given car. Car companies are inevitably responsible to their shareholders. And if you can move forward more quickly uh, and more profitably in a country where you're getting incentivized, then you'll move there. Mm. And the UK, adopted this dogma that, you know, it's the free market and, and we, we let the free market, it's not a free market, that's the point, it's, it's no longer a free market. And, and so we, the UK, because it didn't have a strategy that it could lean on, because every decision had to go to the treasury, guess what, the treasury is full of accountants and accountants will, well, apologies to any accountants in the room, um, but the accountants will look at the return, is there, is there an incentive, is it going to work, is it going to create jobs, and the answer is always no. And the, and the consequence of that was that Innobat didn't come to the UK. British Vault went bankrupt. And you'll say to me, yeah, but JLR managed to. Yes, they did. Yes, they did. But what, what a price to pay. Because politically, the UK couldn't lose that JLR contract. And it wasn't the 500 million that it put, allegedly, on the battery factory. It was all the money that additionally went into British Steel. That there's sort of been pushed away, but we, we overpaid for that for that gigafactory mm. um, And if we'd have been earlier and if we'd have had it as a strategy, we wouldn't have overpaid We'd have got it anyway, but we wouldn't have overpaid and the problem now is that you've you've spent the budget You've spent the budget and you've only got about half the number of gigafactories that you need between now and 2030
0: So that's that would be your estimate. We're about halfway there. Yeah, is it you know about gone for good?
3: It's gone for now I mean, basically, you can only build these gigafactories. Are if you if you talk about um, a, a forty gigawatt hour bat, uh, factory, um, which is about sort of average size, they're about three billion pounds. Um, so, unless you're Catal or LG or what you know, unless you're a mega-sized company, it's difficult to build many all at once. Um, and and you know, Spain. Spain does everything that the EU allows it to do. And then it finds imaginative ways of doing a bit more. Hmm. How, many does to,
2: the, how many of those factories ought the UK to have?
3: Well, you need 100 gigawatts by 2030. Uh, and you need 200 gigawatts by 2040. Today, with the JLR and the Envision, you're at about, you're in, you, you can see your way to about 50. Hmm. So you're, you're halfway to 2030 with nothing else on the horizon, and you're a quarter of the way there for 2040. I didn't answer your question, Steve, about the the move of 2030 to 2035. Um, You've got the worst of both worlds there, of course. So underlying legislation on car makers says that next year, 22% of your fleet, 22% of your sales has to be EV, otherwise we'll we'll fine you 15,000 pounds a car. We're about 16% today. So you're going to start to see, it's good for the consumer, I suppose, but you're going to start to see car companies pushing. You're also giving advantage to the Chinese manufacturers, because the Chinese manufacturers are basically all EV. So they easily meet the 22% threshold. But companies like Ford- And they're uh, subsidized, are they not? And they're subsidized. Of course they are. So 2024, that's, that's just the start. By 20, that same legislation by 2030 says that 80% of the cars that any company sells has to be EVs. So that 2030 target doesn't really change. SUNAC moved the customer stimulus. Yeah. So by moving the customer stimulus, you, you've not got customers saying, I need an EV. All you've got is car companies pushing an EV because they have to and so the push and the pull is out of sync gotcha. and and there there is another it's another idiotic um decision that is simply spin yeah. it has nothing to do with doing anything good for the industry nothing to do with doing anything good for the planet it's simply political spin mm-hmm. Could I ask you? Uh, the, 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 the,
0: there's a large elephant, large, growing larger elephant in the room, to me anyway, which is <laughs> which is um, the, the um, um, uh, solid-state battery. Yeah, Nissan. Uh, I went to a Nissan event. They said that they will they have them wo- they'll have them working next year. They'll have a a, a, a pilot plant in 26, and they'll have a production car with a a, a solid-state battery in in 28. Hmm. What on earth would be the case for any of us buying a car before 2028 when we can get one with a smaller, more power-dense, lighter, more efficient solid-state battery?
3: So there isn't. But there is a reason to, like any technology, you've got to get onto the Moore's curve so somebody has to do it Some, and so we, we're talking here again about the Prius You know, Prius Gen 1, Prius Gen 2 both lost money, Prius Gen 3 made money so it's this famous Moore's curve of technology and the, there are two roadmaps that I think for batteries that are worth looking at um, at a chemistry level uh, it, I should zoom out I think there are three important aspects to any battery there's chemistry there's cooling and there's control and each of those can add, essentially, range. Um, so if you don't have the right chemistry, you're not optimizing. If you're not cooling the cells well, you damage cells and you reduce the range of the battery. And if you're not having a, your battery control unit, uh, again, basically managing the discharge equally from all the cells, you'll reduce your range. So you need those, you need those three. In the, in the area of chemistry, I think there are two roadmaps. There's the evolution of the low-cost chemistries, which you're likely to see in the use of Dacia's Fiat, which is called LFP, um, lithium phosphate, um, principally produced in China, so it arguably has some geopolitical risk, mastered by people like Cattell, Gauzhen, um, and probably costing in the, in the um, order of 80 to 100 dollars per kilowatt hour. So, and if you look at that, what, what follows LFP is probably um, sodium, um, sodium ion. Sodium, of course, is salt. Salt is plentiful, um, and the benefit of salt is it's available everywhere, so you don't have the geopolitical risk. Uh, But interestingly, in the technology, you can discharge it to zero, so it makes it very safe to ship around the world. And it works very well in different temperatures. So I think you you see that roadmap, and that that roadmap potentially giving you lower and lower cost of batteries. But you're only getting around about 150, 160 watt-hours per kilogram, so relatively low energy density, so you need big batteries. Mm. So, so expensive cars will still have expensive batteries. So the the other roadmap is basically what you, you might hear called uh, NMC, and it's it's the it's the root of what was the Nissan Leaf. So, nickel um, based batteries um, with manganese and cobalt, and and you you all know about the the ethical issues around cobalt in particular. But what you see is the, the, the sort of most you can get, you know, comparing that 150 watt hours per kilogram, an NMC battery optimized will give you about 350. So a lot more energy density allows you to get a smaller battery. And if you follow that through to its natural conclusion, you'll see us talking about things like semi solid state uh, and eventually leading to solid state. And so, Probably, ultimately, as, as time goes by and the cost of solid state comes down, that's the optimum solution, because you can get an awful lot of energy into a very small box. Um, but in the meantime, you've got these two competing chemistries. And we, we're gonna invite um, some, some questions, <coughs> but I
0: just have one more. What, if, if you rule the world, um, <laughs> What would be your solution? Don't, don't tell and, my children. I think are, I already do. No, no. <laughs> no, it goes for us all. Um, if, but if, if, if we were we, we are where we are, Yep. what's, what's the best? What, what would be your solution for getting us to where we need to be in the UK? In the
3: UK. So not the world.
0: Well, the world, okay. Give, give, <laughs> give, us, give us the pair of them.
3: I, I'm, I, I am certain there is a climate issue. I'm certain that that climate issue is not a problem for our kids. It's a problem for us. Uh, I'm actually travelling to uh, Antarctica in a couple of weeks to to, to look at look at the problem, problem. F- firsthand. Um, we will, as a as a population, we will continue to dismiss it until it starts to kill people um, and we start to see cities being flooded, etc. But it, it, it exists. It's an existential problem. And it's a solvable problem. Uh, and we, uh, the one benefit of the car industry is it's more advanced than anywhere else. So we actually know how to solve. We know how to make net zero cars. We know how to do net zero transportation. We know where, that will, where, where the technology will lead so we can make life better. For example, the development of eVTOLs, vertical takeoff and landing one of the things that humanity does is it goes faster and the vitals and um, these um, the, these bore trains are part, part of the solution. But the reality is we could solve the problem quickly. I mean, we could solve the problem of, of asthma in kids in, uh, in, in cities simply by mandating that, electric buses and electric vans and electric taxis, relatively small part of the of the population, we could mandate them now. Um, as long as you're doing the right things, which is subsidizing the introduction of <coughs> those early adopters and making sure that you've got a proper charging infrastructure. So that would be my, my, my view, is that you can't have a, you can't have a ca- capitalist view in such turbulent times. You've got to... You've got to put your money where it's important. Climate change is going to cost countries a lot of money. Invest up front. uh, Put the infrastructure in place. get um, get, Get the populace used to the idea of driving an electric car. And allow competition, which is to say... Don't dismiss the alternatives and the alternatives of of synthetic fuels. This is what all hydrogen. engineers
0: show, say, Say, isn't it?
3: Give us, give us the target, not the, not, don't let... Don't yeah, well, you know, of- there are, I think, uh, in our in parliament down the road, I think only 6% of the members actually have a STEM qualification. Mm-hmm. So they're not qualified to tell you what the solution is, Right. They can tell you what the problem is. And, yeah. and if the idea is that you want to take particulates out of the air, that's a different question to taking CO2 out of the air. So what, first of all, what's the exam question? And then allow the, the, um, the engineers to innovate. And an engineer will, one engineer will do this and another will do this. And you allow a, a sense of Darwinism and you know, Darwinism is the betterment of the species. If you allow electric cars to compete with synthetic fuels, with hot hydrogen, with fuel cells, and whatever we haven't invented yet, then humanity will go much more quickly than some some idiot politician telling you what you should do. Before Got we it? take a break, Andy, yeah. tell me a,
2: your thoughts on some of those alternatives.
3: Um, I, I think each of them have each of them have merit. Um, I, I think the majority of passenger cars will go electric. And the reason I think that is if one just needs to look at the thermodynamic equation and uh, a battery electric car is much thermodynamically much more efficient than anything else out there. Um, but it's not very good when it comes to big mass. Um, and it's not necessarily perhaps very emotional. So I think starting around the edges, I think heavy goods vehicles could go with hot hydrogen in the first instance because it sort of makes, makes sense and it's relatively easy to do. The problem with, with hydrogen is it's difficult to find green hydrogen. Um, but you maybe start with blue, pragmatically start with blue, where, where you, you carbon capture to, to, to give you the zero carbon. Synthetic fuels are amazingly interesting. Mm. The idea that you can drag CO2 out of the atmosphere with a lot of energy, you can turn it into gasoline. And I think it will become a much bigger thing in the consciousness of the public once Formula One in 2026 moves across to synthetic fuel. It's going to be expensive, but perhaps for those people that value the sound of the internal combustion engine um, or perhaps classic cars, I know I'm sure some of you in the audience that have classic cars, the idea that you could continue to run them on a synthetic fuel, which is net zero, You take it out of the atmosphere and you emit it back into the atmosphere. Maybe it won't be allowed in inner cities because you're still creating particulates, but but it's still net zero. That's why that that exam question, are we worrying about particulates, CO2, or both? Um, That's why that question is so important. Um, Fuel cell. I mean, I started development of fuel cells when I started development of EVs. And I don't find a route yet to making them a a viable proposition, which is why I tend to go towards um, hot hydrogen. And I did some work with a company called Punch, which is a Belgian company, looking at pickups. Again, weight is the the big problem for EVs. And with a pickup, particularly ones that tow, as they do in the United States, Mm. maybe, just maybe, hot hydrogen, the combustion of hydrogen, is a better solution.
2: Cool, thanks. Right, we'll take a, uh, a very short break. And My week in cars will be back in just a minute with more from Andy and the AutoCar team. What car would you buy if you could buy any car? What car would you buy if you knew you could save thousands? What car would you buy if you could compare the latest offers from approved dealers? What car would you buy if you could do all of this in one place in just a few simple clicks? And where would you go to buy that car? WhatCar, car buying made easy. Visit whatcar.com to buy your next new car. And welcome back. We have a panel. Uh, so at the far end, from the far end to here, Ilya Verpreet, one of Autocar's road testers, Felix Page, who is the news editor, Mark Tishaw, who is Autocar's editor, and Steve and Andy. Of course, you know. Um, some questions that you have already put up. Also, if you have a question, at some point I will that you haven't written down, um, I'll put some out to the floor, stick your hand up, and Will or Lydia will come round with a mic. Um, but to get us started, uh, Dave Edmondson asks, should we be concerned about the Chinese increasingly dominating the
3: affordable electric car and
2: battery production? Andy.
3: Yes, no. Um, <clears throat> depends on your perspective. Um, you have to admire the Chinese. Um, They've been working to my knowledge for 15 years on a strategy which was, I was sitting on the board of Donfin when it was first introduced, which was basically we're going, we can't beat the West with internal combustion engines so we're going to leapfrog with what they call new energy vehicles. And, and you have to admire that ability to, 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 to discharge a long-term plan, which means that they've got economies of scale, they've got government backing, so they've got incentives, and they've got incentives to go overseas. The two of those together means that they, they can produce low-cost cars. And by the way, those cars are pretty damn good. Um, so from a consumer point of view, nobody else can get you to a 20,000-pound 20, 20, car. Uh, and what what the industry desperately needs to do to go from a... market share to a 60% market share, it needs to get into that value seeker uh, market, Uh, and the Chinese can do that so yes, consumer, great from an industry perspective from a western industry perspective, of course it's disastrous because that means that basically it's not it's not um, European or UK produced vehicles which are necessarily finding their way to market and you therefore don't get that ability to scale quickly uh, therefore you don't get to enjoy the economies of scale and ultimately uh, and this is my my biggest fear for the UK is that being on the front foot from a consumer point of view and the 2030 legislation now 2035 but that legislation was being on the front foot but because you didn't think about it from an industrial perspective, you essentially export the jobs. And, and so my, my biggest fear is, I mean, it's more than a fear, it's a reality. The Chinese are the new Koreans or the new Japanese. They're, they're going to dominate in this industry because they've been smart uh, and we're going to lose out. Europe is going to lose out because it hasn't been smart and you either do something like the United States with the IRA Act or you sit on the side and you die. Mm-hmm. Do governments realise
2: that European governments is it is it that they like you say in the in the UK where it's it's a decision we're not going to get involved because the free market wins, or is it just carelessness?
3: Uh, Europe, Europe, at least with the 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 senior officials that I've spent time with in Europe, Europe appears to understand it, but it has a, a block on being able to do the incentives at the level that the, the US is doing. So I think Europe will, will go with a combination of incentives on one hand and tariffs on the other. So what you'll see is a carbon tariff, for example. It, it's not well publicized yet, but every new battery will have a passport that passport will describe what the content of the battery is, how much of it is recycled, and ultimately what its carbon footprint is. That's a precursor to what I think will be uh, a carbon taxation. There will probably be a local content taxation. So I think Europe will turn it around in that that sense. It's it's still very much interventionist, Mm. but it will be a combination of uh, incentives and tariffs. And as you know, the UK is sitting and watching and, and, and basically is stuck on this dogma of, of the free market when it's not a free market. Mm-hmm. Um, I have worked with um, uh, Jonathan Reynolds, who potentially is the incoming uh, minister for Bayes, uh, and I'm pleased to say that the Labour Party has at least written a manifesto that appears to make more sense. I would say that, wouldn't I? Um, but the question is whether they can discharge it when they come into power and, and whether you can whether you can manifest enough funds to be able to, to do what would be needed to catch up. Steve. Um,
0: well, I, I was just going to add, I, because of Mr. Tishaw, I was sent to interview um, Luca DiMio, the boss of Renault recently. And I put this question to him and he said, he was much more bullish than I expected because I have heard various people say that the, Japanese, the Chinese strategy is to come into the lower orders and then, in, in a nice, uh, leisurely fashion, take over the lot. Uh, but what he said was, if you consider what's happened in Europe since the 50s, first the Americans came, then the Japanese came, then the Koreans came, and now it's the Chinese. And if you add up the, the whole lot of them at the moment, it makes 25%, not 95%, that was his quote. And he said we will, he doesn't believe that, that they'll, the Chinese will be able to take over. He says that the, the ability to distribute cars and service customers and all of it, um, the European grip on that is the envy of the Chinese. And therefore, there are a number of ways in which we can fight or which Europe can fight. But it doesn't help. He he was well up for saying that uh, you know it was it was wrong that uh, that um, subsidised Chinese cars should make, be making taking such a bite. But he was more bullish than I expected.
2: Ilya, road tester, you've driven a few. Hmm. I mean Chinese built cars, but also Chinese branded cars. How competitive are the Chinese branded ones?
4: Uh, it varies because there's. Uh, so far in a lot of the Chinese um, branded cars I've found a certain sort of unfinishedness there's, there's a certain attention to detail which I'm sure will come at some point especially in safety systems in sort of tactile quality that is just not on the level of European Japanese Korean cars um, On the other hand, a lot of them are a lot cheaper than their um, established rivals and definitely excuse those flaws. So I can absolutely see why someone would buy some of these cars uh, and some of them, like the MG4, are genuinely good, are genuinely competitive. And that, from my perspective, does make my job quite interesting because you don't always know what to expect. Some of them... And you do occasionally find one that just is well short of the mark, um, which is...
0: Name names, go on, mate. <laughs> well, <laughs> the Aura Funky Cat.
4: Yeah, that got two and a half stars in the road test uh, because it is quite short of the mark. And it's I generally don't actually like me being mean about cars, but occasionally it, it is quite interesting to um, write a row test like that. <laughs>
0: Could I, could we know who in the audience has a Chinese car? <laughs> <laughs> no Polestar's?
4: Yeah, Chinese built as well yeah. as Chinese branded. Tesla, yeah. Mm. yeah. That, that, well, that, Polestar? That is an interesting one because there are a lot of cars that a lot of people don't actually realize are Chinese built. There are so many Volvos that are Chinese built, BMW, IX3, um, yeah. Yeah. Um, Chessin
2: Suleiman says, a question about Tesla seemed to have understood consumer demand, almost Apple-esque. In 10 years, will they be the major car industry player? They always claimed
1: they would be. Felix or Mark, one of you do. That's an interesting one. I think uh, the Apple analogy is, is quite a good one because Apple came to market with a product that was so competitive, so unlike anything we knew before that they stole a march on the industry almost immediately. Everyone played catch-up and now some manufacturers some of them Chinese have overtaken Apple in, in various key respects. I think Tesla is uh, almost a victim of its own success in a way because Elon Musk is so high profile, so vocal, uh, and I think to some extent his actions, his words—I shouldn't—I should say not actions—are um, directing the public image of that company. But fundamentally, uh, some of its strengths now are fading into the background. The supercharger <laughs> network, for so long, has been uh, its. Fiesta resistance, in a way, you know, people buy a Tesla because of the supercharger network, but we've now got GridServe, which is a fantastic network that's still in its infancy, but you can see the ambition, and it genuinely does work. Uh, Podpoint, Osprey, these are are charging companies that have potential to uh, compete at that level. And the cars themselves now, uh, I mean, Volkswagen is bringing to market a Tesla Model 3 rival with over 400 miles of range. Um, The infotainment in lots of other cars puts Teslas to shame. Uh, unless you like playing Mario Kart while you're sat waiting to charge. Um, so I do think, in a way, Tesla's success has forced other manufacturers to, to catch up and catch up quickly. Uh, and it's going to be really interesting to see how Tesla looks to claw back some of that ground. Yeah,
2: should we have one from the
1: floor? Anybody got a question they would like to ask? Or I'll a hand up over the far side, Will.
3: Yeah, sorry, Colin. As, uh, as car buffs, which I'm sure most of us are, um, one thing I have sort of like clicked onto is Tesla built their cars from technology upwards, whereas most car companies built their cars from cars down to te- technology. And uh, te- I think Porsche have just pulled their uh, um, development of taken and, and uh, on technology basis. So I'm, I'm wondering whether we're, we're sort of falling behind on the. Um, Technology basis, the software basis. Andy, your thoughts? Some, some of what you say is true. Um, I don't know whether I should say this or not, but um, I was offered the the job of Tesla CEO on three different occasions, um, and I turned him down on three different occasions, which is why he doesn't speak to me anymore. And and it was because I didn't think there was room for two egos that big in one room. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But we had, he's an interesting chap, Uh, we had a big philosophical discussion around um, the the approach to technology, and in particular around the uh, infotainment system. And I thought he was utterly mad for developing it all in-house and doing all this coding in-house, whereas me coming from a, a, a traditional OEM background w- would, have, would have gone out to the, to the first-tier supplier and the second-tier supplier and built it up. So car industries typically put a lot of that work out, outside. Um, and he was right, and I was wrong. Because you know, one of the great strengths of, of Tesla was that information system and its ability to move to um, the autonomous driving, et cetera, et cetera. Whatever you think about it, they moved. They move the needle. On the other hand, he innovated in areas like trying to automate uh, trim and final assembly, and you know he coined the term that we all thought about, which was you know m- production hell, and and most of the startups have struggled through the move from engineering a vehicle through to production and, and have completely underestimated it. So in conclusion, I think um, the bit where traditional car companies need to work hard is in the integration of software. Um, and you've seen what happened particularly with the VW ID. Three, and how easily that can get screwed up if you don't do it well. And, and what I've learned at least, um, particularly through running Podpoint, um, is that software development and engineering of software is very different from engineering of hardware, and you can't run them in the same in the same way. In a in a hardware environment, you talk about a, a four-year plan of development, and you draw your your resources, and you can plan them, and 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 um, you know you go through a development cycle. In the software world, you tend to run on sprints, so you have a scrum and a sprint. And it's a very different way of developing. And I don't think the car companies have yet worked out, the traditional car companies have yet worked out how to integrate the two things. And um, perhaps Tesla has been smarter and quicker in that particular area. Can I ask why you really didn't take the job?
5: Is
3: (laughs) is this recorded? <laughs> um, I didn't think. Well, I didn't. I didn't think that Tesla would be around. Or I thought there was a high risk that it wouldn't be around. Um, because this was a long time ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I also didn't think. I could be persuasive enough for Elon to listen to me. And I didn't think I'd be in the company very long. Um, And then, truthfully, in parenthesis, I was offered the Aston Martin job at around the same time. And um, Aston Aston sort of appealed to my English heritage. Not not as far to travel to work either. (laughs) (laughs) One could argue also a bit more entertaining.
0: Of course, yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
3: Well, just, yes, just, just, right by your side. Yeah, there you
4: There's a range of journalists in the room, some a bit younger, some more seasoned. What are your feelings on increasingly reviewing EVs rather than internal combustion engine cars? Sounds
2: like an Ilia question to me.
4: Um, I feel I'm lucky in that I genuinely like EVs. I I am an old school petrol head. At the same time, you'll have to pry the engine and um, manual gearbox from my cold dead hands. Um, but at the moment, I love having them side-by-side and going from a petrol car, whether it's something fast or something very ordinary, into an electric car, because they they <clears throat> give me entirely different sensations, and they give me entirely different things to talk about and to write about, and that keeps it interesting. I don't know what's happening what's going to happen when it's all EVs, but um, that's still quite a few years down the line. Um, And at the moment, I think we're in, both for journalism and for the general car market, in quite a nice place that we we have the choice and we can have both, and you can have an EV and a petrol car side by side.
5: Mark. And I drove something on Saturday morning, which was the most incredible EV I've ever driven. It was a Lexus UX 300E, which is completely nondescript. However, it had a manual transmission. It, it blew my mind in how incredible it was. And it wasn't just the jet lag or the friendly engineers. You could, it had a proper biting point. You could stall it. If you put your foot down in sixth gear, Toyota had engineered this kind of shaking of the A-pillars. And it, it was... And it was excellent. I was completely tricked, and they would um, put the soundtrack of a, of a, I think it was a Mark V Volkswagen Golf GTI into it as well. <laughs> and I, I was so involved in it. I had no idea it was a squidgy Lexus crossover that, I'd you know, it was pretty unremarkable.
2: On that, on that note, Mike says thanks, Mike. Uh, can Matt explain? Maybe, which EVs are better than a Golf GTI or a BMW 3 Series? Anybody who tests cars here have an opinion on that so
5: far? The Lexus UX Realm. The (laughs) Lexus UX with the manual gear. The manual transmission.
1: Is there anything better than a 3 Series? To that point, (laughs) and it sort of answers the last question as well. I think uh, when we talk about the increasing uh, number of EVs on the road, the increasing number of EVs we test, there's this idea that there's a a homogeneity to them all. They all drive the same, they all behave the same. fundamentally not true I mean That's it, yeah we talked about the aura funky cat a minute ago I spent six months in one of them and then straight into a good car and uh, <laughs> that really that really highlights they don't behave the same in much the same way that combustion cars haven't be- behaved the same I've been living with uh, a Volkswagen ID buzz for a month now and it does everything that the BMW 3 series I had last week does mm. um, you know you have to stop and charge you have to factor that in but in terms of better I think you have to ask the question you would have asked 10 years ago, which is, what do you want your car to do? So. Yeah.
0: As, as just to, I, I think your question was an interesting one. As somebody on the kind of crusty end of the argument, I don't have any trouble at all with the progress of cars. and you, People of my age are expected, I think, to, to talk about how terrible it all is and, and we're all going to the bad I just don't find that. I, in my yard this weekend, I had a pretty potent Polestar and a Jaguar F Type V8, and I couldn't. I was just looking from one to the other. We, my Mrs. and I, seem to spend the weekend driving around for recreational reasons, and um, I, I just, I enjoyed them both. I, I, I really do not see that we have to, we have to. Be concerned about the, the the way life's going. It's just it's just progress, and the market will decide. The market and the law will decide, and you know nobody's going to take F-type V8s off the road. It's just that they're in. Pretty soon, there won't be any more. But there'll be a hell of a store of them, and if you want one, you can get one. So <clears throat> I, I I I feel impatient. When talking to people of my age group who who think it's all terrible and the world's ending, because it isn't. Steve, you
2: went to interview some pods from McLaren, didn't you, not long ago? And they talked about the f- stages of EV, and there was a stage where you just you just got to get the technology <coughs> out there, and then there are stages where it becomes more interesting and stuff.
0: Yeah, it was really clever stuff. That the, the, these McLaren applied is is the old McLaren technology company that's been hived off, and it's privately owned by a investor, I think of some kind, but anyway they they 'd um, compartmentalized the the progress of eVs into four and they rec- they reckoned we were at the top end of phase two phase one was just was leaf phase two was profusion you know just so everybody 's got one. phase three was um, to tackle the the obvious imperfections like lightness and and you know inefficiency of batteries and things like that, and phase four was to make them really interesting and they they were full of optimism about the future and how they had no doubt that that you know at the top of phase three and into phase four we would we would find that the products were had had the character we required had the driving challenge we require, but they were they accompanied that with all the efficiencies of EVs. And it, it, was a, it was an
3: optimistic day out. I really enjoyed it. My, my best car never made was um, a product called the Nissan Blade Glider. Oh, yes, recorded. it. I mean, it was inspired from the track and the Zod that did the 24-hour, or tried to do the 24-hour race. We had a narrow front, one-metre, width uh, front end and a wide rear end and had a, um, a McLaren F1 seating pattern. Um, and the balance of that car, along with the torque of the of the engine and the weight balance that we managed to achieve, it is to this day the best car I've ever driven.
0: Wow. Is that the car that's sort of almost triangular to... Mm-hmm. The, and, and it... it it was amazingly stable in a straight line, as I understand it.
3: Yeah, we had uh, some challenges because obviously, the the you you think about the the coefficient of friction, and you've got the the wheels don't follow the track, so you've got essentially two two footprints. Oh yeah, um, lots of bumps. So you, you you needed to be able to uh, to control it. So there's a lot of software that went into it, but it is just the most neutral car I've ever driven. Right. I mean, it, it, for an, an idiot that can't drift, it was just just amazing and it's to this day that if, if if somebody came to me and said here's a few hundred million quid what car would you develop that's the one i would do <laughs> and and i get quite frustrated that car companies haven't yet moved through i mean we're still producing th- three box cars an, an electric car the the you know the, the the platform finishes here it's flat you can do you can put the driver at the back to the side of the front uh, we haven't been very imaginative, imaginative on form factor as it sits today. Is that how a
2: small volume sports car company could mm. start to win the argument? Having spent seven decades telling us their engines are brilliant, at some point they've got to...
3: So you've got to you, do something else to... I mean, what, why do supercar companies and sports car companies exist? It's because they tantalise somehow the, the emotions. And one can argue, I suppose, that if you lose a a V12 or a V8, that somewhere you're losing some of the emotion. But you need to get it back in other ways. And you get it back through amazing torque, amazing acceleration. But why not change the form factor? Simon Saunders, the
0: the aerial bloke, says that the reason they survive is because they just do stuff which is so far outside the limits for big companies that no no big company will tackle it. And that, he believes, is the... Is that, that's, that's why TVR failed. That's why Ariel keeps going. TVR failed because it was trying to do a car, a, a car that, that the Porsche Boxster came along and did a, a squillion times better. Mm. And, uh, and, but Ariel survives because nobody's going to build a, a bodiless, window, windscreenless <laughs> madman machine, you know. Do we have any more? In many
3: sectors, we've seen the concept of a squeeze middle. Do you think this will happen in automotive, where it will become a battle between being a low-cost provider and a premium provider?
0: That's a, that's a really interesting question, isn't it? It's happened plenty of times before. Hilton Holloway's favourite subject.
2: Well, I mean, yeah. there was a time when you wouldn't have wanted to be Vauxhall or Renault or something. You either wanted to be the budget brand or the yeah. or the profitable
0: BMW brand. or I I, I, Skoda.
2: Yeah. I mean... Is brand, is, how important is brands? still?
3: I mean brand is the I think somebody over there talked about it but brand is one of the key differentiators and it's if you really talk with senior execs in Chinese car companies there is a, a growing acknowledgement that that's the bit they don't know how to do and of course they, they do they, they get round it by hiring Germans or Brits or Italians to try and do it for them but Um, you know for a long time we had a a number of Chinese pursuing Aston Martin and the idea was that you could take the Aston Martin brand and sell 100,000 in China and I've no doubt that you could but you'd wreck the brand so that that understanding of of brand is is difficult if you talk about margins and the car industry you know the car industry makes amazingly small margins on a per vehicle basis actually most, most cars lose money But the the segments that tend to be profitable are either the the Dacia, really, really low-value engineered, um, low-cost value engineered products, or the premium segments, the um, BMW, Mercedes, Audi type. And the bit in the middle is where you get the squeeze. Um, And... at least in the, in the near term, I think that's going to be exacerbated by, by EV because of the high cost of the battery. So it's a difficult place to be, which is why you see a lot of, a lot of those mass car manufacturers searching around for different solutions, agency uh, solutions, um, particularly differences of the supply chain, working, bringing cars in from China, which was, un, un, you know, Tesla for example, bringing cars in from China. So I think there's a there's a search for how you make how you make profit in that middle ground, um, and it's going to get tougher before it gets easier.
0: Presumably, it's a it's a moving thing as well, because if if there's a squeeze going on, that the stuff in the middle gets squeezed, and it's it's no longer there somehow. I yeah,
3: so. but, I mean that's why I think I mean sort of my hypothesis is that. If you took the number of car companies that exist in i don't know two thousand and ten and you look at the number of car companies that will exist in let's say two thousand and sixty just to take a reference, so probably the number is about the same but you'll you'll' there'll be different names on the door, so I think you're going to get you're going to get the squeeze and you're going to lose some big name mass brands uh in the middle, particularly if they don't move fast enough uh and Sort out their supply chain, particularly you know how you get raw materials into batteries, batteries locally made, and 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 how you how you address the value of those vehicles. You know there are some slow move. I won't name them, but you know who they are. There are some people who just move too slowly, and the the risk is that they just disappear, and they get replaced by a brand like Funky Cat. Not sure that one will survive.
2: Andy <laughs> here first. Andy, uh, thank you very much. That brings us. Um, To the end of the time we've got for this evening. Thanks very much, Andy Palmer, for joining us. Real pleasure. Great pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, you, Stephen. Thank you to the rest of the Autocar team. Uh, Thank you very much, all, for coming. Really appreciate it. And thanks to the Royal Automobile Club for having us. This episode of My Week in Cars will be out this Wednesday morning from your favourite podcast provider and you can find Autocar um, in print um, on digital subscription at themagazineshop.com including the full archive Uh, and uh, thanks very much, see you next time